Thank you guys very much. Our lesson on which tonight's teaching is based comes uh, as a follow-up to what we just read a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. And again, we're worshiping tonight and studying under this theme, the culture of celebrity. So this letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, which he has just started out, now he starts getting into what's going on and what's going wrong with the church in Corinth, and he writes the following. He says, I appeal, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was the apostle Paul crucified for you? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, Paul says, that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Jesus Christ be emptied of its power. Here ends our lesson. And we're going to break our teaching tonight into these three simple points. We're going to look at the prevalence of celebrity culture. We're going to look at the problem of celebrity culture. Why do we do it and what damages come about through celebrity culture? And lastly, we're going to look at the character of Jesus Christ himself and see how antithetical that is to the concept of celebrity. So the prevalence of celebrity culture, the problem of celebrity culture, and the character of Christ. First of all, the prevalence of celebrity culture. Now, uh, in preparing for this week, what I did is I, I read through a book that was actually gifted to me a number of years ago, a fairly well-acclaimed book. It's about a decade old called Fame Junkies. It's written by an independent journalist named Jake Halpern. And in the basic premise of the book, essentially, he says, is the combination of American isolation and loneliness with our desire to belong is what is fueling America's celebrity-driven culture and fascination because of what like clinicians would call a parasocial relationship with celebrities. In other words, even if they don't have a relationship with us, we view ourselves and we identify ourselves in how we relate to them. And he cites a bunch of different uh, interesting research throughout the book. So for instance, uh, again, the book is written about 10 years ago, but uh, a lot of the research is from the mid-2000s. There was kind of a famous study that came out in the mid-2000s where a bunch of teenagers across the country were asked, if you could sit down for dinner tonight with one famous person, past or present, alive or dead, which person would you like to have over as a dinner guest? And there's this long list of individuals to choose from. And remember, it's the, the mid-2000s, so I think at the time it was like President Bush and uh, Shaquille O'Neal and uh, Jennifer Lopez and Einstein was one and Abraham Lincoln was one and a bunch of others. Interestingly, amongst teenage boys who self-identified as not being lonely, the number one choice that they selected to have over as a dinner guest was none other than Jesus Christ. However, amongst the teenage boys who self-identified as lonely, 
Jesus actually ranked very low. And the number one selection for those boys uh, was rapper, 50 Cent. Now, remember, that's mid-2000s here. Uh, now, you move over to the girls, and it's a very similar pattern develops a slightly differently worded question, but amongst girls who felt appreciated by their classmates, by their teachers, by their parents, those girls said the first person that they would want to have as a dinner guest over was Jesus Christ. On the other hand, Amongst the girls who said that they didn't feel appreciated by either their peers or their parents, the number one woman, the number one individual that they wanted to have as a dinner guest was Paris Hilton. Now, there's a lot of probably interesting stuff that we could untangle from that information, but at the very least, I think what you can clearly see is that there's some, whether it's causation or correlation, I don't know, but at the very least, there's some kind of correlation there between somebody wanting to have some kind of personal relationship with Jesus Christ and not feeling lonely in life. Something there, whatever it is. By the way, Jake Halpern, the, the journalist here, is not a Christian so far as I, so far as I know. Uh, but he says, you know what, uh, there is a bunch of other information out there that would almost suggest possibly the opposite. There is, by the way, the idea that we would not feel lonely in life. Sometimes people talk about Christian faith as being hypothetical and about abstracts and about eternity and heaven. And th- Not feeling lonely, that is very practical. That is very useful for every human being like right now. However, Christians are not immune to that type of isolation and loneliness that Jake Halpern was describing and that celebrity identification that he was describing. In fact, he dedicates one chapter to a woman uh, referred to as Marcy from Pittsburgh. Marcy from Pittsburgh is self-identified as uh, the world's biggest Rod Stewart fan. Rod Stewart, if you don't know, is kind of an icon and uh, legend of rock music, specifically an icon of soft rock music. And any of you at home who are listening and saying, Pastor Hein, you seem like the type of guy that might really like soft uh, rock music. First of all, I'm a little offended by the assumption. Secondly, you are correct. Uh, I'm not, I, I, I never liked Rod Stewart. I've always been more of a Bolton guy myself. But here's the point, here's the point. Marcy from Pittsburgh says she's the biggest Rod Stewart fan in the world and she spent a ton of money traveling around the world, going to concerts around the world. She has shrines in her house. She has, Rod Stewart actually knows her as his number one fan. And what's really interesting to me in this interview that I, I thought, you know, that's, that's telling, Marcy also self-identifies as a devout Christian who attends church regularly. And at one point in time, when the author presses her on that, she says, Yeah, that's something that I sort of struggle with. I wish I was as passionate about Jesus as I am about Rod. I do kind of worry about that. Now, Halpern goes on to cite a bunch more research that says that uh, people who have, uh, by their own attestation, have some kind of personal relationship with Jesus Christ are significantly less inclined to have celebrity fascination in their life. And he expands at that point to say celebrity is not just an individual, but it's also, he, he includes like celebrity institutions. So, you know, professional sports teams or movie franchises or something like that. Somebody who says they have a deep relationship with Jesus Christ proportionately and statistically is much less likely to have uh, kind of hyper-fascination with one of those celebrities or celebrity institutions. And then he gets to the end of the chapter and this end of this conversation with Marcy and she says something really interesting again. She says, you know what, I'm aware of all of Rod's imperfections, but I guess Rod just makes me feel important. 
like when he acknowledges me at a concert or when I get to take a picture with him. And then she says, when I came to Christ back in 1992, I felt an inner peace. I realized that God loves me just the way I am, whereas Rod wouldn't. Rod loves tall blondes. That is, that is an incredible statement that we'll come back to again. Rod loves tall blondes. Now, again, there's probably a lot that we could pull out from that information before us, but at the very least, again, I think what we can say is human beings are worshiping creatures. Uh, we have something about our design, something within us that inclines us to worship, that inclines us to give praise, that inclines us to give someone or something the ultimate affirmation, the ultimate credit in our lives. The one hiccup to that is what is alluded to in the first commandment. We have this predisposed, unfortunate uh, problem of always seeking, according to our flesh, to aim in the wrong direction when it comes to our worship. We are inclined to look to other things and other people other than Jesus Christ to give us what only God himself can actually give us, like the deepest longings of our hearts. What do we do? See, clearly, this is a problem for the world. But the question, I think, for us is like, is this a problem for Christians? Is this a problem that exists out there or is this a problem that, you know, kind of exists in here amongst Christians? In fact, what we get to in our text here tonight is, is this a problem even as it relates to things like Christian leaders and the way we identify within churches? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a podcast or listening to a podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is a couple of Canadian guys who are pushing uh, the Christian church to try to innovate by leveraging technology for the proclamation of the gospel. A couple weeks ago, they had an episode on American Christianity and the culture of celebrity. And one of the things they said, now remember, this is two Canadian guys. Uh, Canada is about as close to a nation, you know, as, as any could be to the United States of America. And two Canadian guys from the outside looking in and saying, yeah, the American Christian church seems to have some kind of issue with sort of celebrity. And they go through example after example of cases of like, for instance, American pastors who rose to some level of prominence and were elevated to some level of almost kind of like celebrity and how often they ended up falling in some kind of uh, embroiled in scandal sort of way. And essentially what these guys are saying, their assertion is that is exactly what you would expect when you have any system, especially that calls itself Christian, that is trying to push anything or anyone up ahead of Jesus Christ. Our approach to ministry is, is perhaps best stated by John the Baptist, who when he saw Jesus coming, what did he say? He, you, Jesus Christ, he's got to become greater, and I personally have to become less. See, that's, that's part of the problem of what's going on in the church in Corinth that we read about just a minute ago. The, the church in Corinth was struggling with this kind of like celebrity worship. The members were becoming polarized because they seemed to be identifying by lining themselves up behind leaders uh, that were kind of their favorite leaders. And so what happens, and the Apostle Paul finds out about this. He's not there at the time. He's writing this letter. And he found out about it through a, a woman in the household of a prominent woman in the church named Chloe. And she says, look, we got all sorts of problems, but a lot of it is stemming from these factions and divisions that are breaking out within the church. And she says, look, some people are lining up behind 
uh, this leader, and some people are lining up behind that teacher, and it appears to be the case that individuals are essentially sort of elevating whatever particular character traits and qualities of a certain teacher that they like, elevating them to like the superlative, to the pinnacle, and feeling superior to anybody else who is identifying with any other kind of teacher. Now, specifically, and without too much speculation, what seems to be going on here is there's two main parties, the party of Apollos and the party of Paul. Now, again, I don't mean party of Apollos and party of Paul because these guys are starting their own, like, parties within the church. They're not that's not the case. It's individuals who are identifying with these two, two guys. And the guys who are, and women who are identifying with Paul are probably saying, you know what, he's the first. He is, he's the guy who founded our church. He is the guy who uh, is bringing this whole Christian global movement around the world in mission. He is the guy who, when we saw him, he was working miracles. He was healing people and driving out demons and, and all that kind of stuff. So we identify with him. And the party of Apollos was probably saying, yeah, but he, look how, listen to how eloquent he is. Listen to how educated and academic he is. Uh, he is like the perfect synthesis of Corinthian philosophical culture and Christian faith and belief. And if you're wondering where I'm getting that from, we are introduced to him in Acts chapter 18, and we're told there there is a Jew named Apollos who was a native of Alexandria who came to Ephesus and then later to Corinth. He was a very eloquent man, exceedingly well-versed even in the scriptures. Now, there's probably fewer people who are saying, I belong to the party of Cephas, which is another name for Peter, if you don't know. And... Uh, that's also interesting because as far as we know, Peter wasn't actually ever in Corinth. It's possible that some of these individuals were those who were there back at that first Christian Pentecost. Remember when the 3,000 uh, people came to faith and were baptized and maybe they had come back and been at this church in Corinth? They said, yes, uh, going way back to the beginning. That's, we identify with Peter as the leader of the church. And then there's another group. Another group that Paul mentions is those who are coming in and saying, ah, we belong to the party of Christ. And, you know, you might say, okay, uh, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? You know, aren't we supposed to identify primarily with Christ? And they're saying this kind of self-righteously. And what I'd tell you is almost every Bible commentator, when they write about this, they will say very clearly the way Paul writes this, he is not approving of what they're saying when they say, I identify with Christ. Because what they seem to be doing is saying, you know what, I identify with Christ. And in the process, what they're trying to do is discredit what God the Holy Spirit is actually accomplishing, the ministry that he's conducting through Paul and through Apollos and through Peter. In other words, Christians struggle with this too today. There's a lot of Christians that I would talk to that say, yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I don't need a relationship to, from any other, with any other believer. I don't need a relationship with the church. I don't need to sit at the foot of another person and be mentored. I don't need to be held accountable by any other Christians. That's what this group sort of self-righteously seems to be proclaiming. And ultimately what's going on is you have a bunch of people who are identifying with someone and in doing so creating divisions within the church, and the Apostle Paul's response to that is, come on, is Christ divided? Now, how does, how does division like this happen in a church? There's two things, I think, that are causes in Corinth, and I think they're probably the same two causes that might exist uh, in splintering within churches today. Two things are, number one, the church is in Corinth, which is in Greece, and everybody in Greece really prided themselves on their Greek philosophy. Uh, and what Greek philosophers, as well as Greek gods, uh, what, what the people did 
is they were constantly going around saying, I am particularly devout to this God, and I particularly like to sit at the feet and listen to this teacher, and I particularly am living my life according to the guidelines of this philosopher. And so their whole identity was wrapped up in who, which God, and which philosopher, and which celebrity they attached themselves to. And what the the Corinthian Christians seem to be doing is taking that exact same mentality and now bringing it into the church. And what is it doing? It's causing divisions amongst them. Now, the second thing that's going on in that church is the natural human impulse to try to elevate a messenger, essentially, ahead of the message. And the Apostle Paul says the ultimate result of that, he gives it to us here in verse 17. He says, if you do that, elevate the messenger over the message, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to empty the cross of Christ of its power. Now, that's an incredible phrase, which we're going to continue to unpack as we walk through Corinthians. In short, what it means is, and Paul explains this to a great deal in in Romans and elsewhere too, where he says, look, either you're saved by grace or you're not saved by grace. It's an all or nothing kind of proposition, so you've got to pick a lane. You're saved by grace or you're not saved by grace. You can't be saved by grace plus Uh, this person who is really talented, this person who is really uh, well-versed, this person who is really faithful, this person who is really hardworking. See, if you you contribute any salvation to some goodness of some person or some goodness within yourself, then grace is no longer grace. It's all or nothing. It's Jesus alone or nothing. It's either you or him, see? Now, that requires more explanation, but first, the thing that I want you to think about here today is Like, does that celebrity culture exist? Does it even exist in the minds and in the hearts of Christians? Does it exist at all in any way, even amongst Christian churches? Do we have a tendency to create factions based on preferences? Do we have a tendency to elevate some gifts over other other gifts? Do we have a tendency to elevate ministers and messengers over ministry and the message? If so, historically, that has absolutely always, always, always been a terrible disaster in Christian community. And therefore, let's look at the problem of celebrity culture. Um, I I think there's two pieces attached to this here. Why do we do it? And what is the danger when we do it? Why do we do it? Well, the first thing I want to say is there's this tremendous danger in taking pride in any walk of life. There's a danger in taking pride in knowing or being associated with people that you deem important. Uh, why do we do that? Most of us naturally feel kind of like nobodies. In a world that seems to be championing the desirability of popularity. And so culturally, the, what we learn to do is we learn to try to make ourselves, we feel insignificant, we try to make ourselves feel significant by attaching ourselves to somebody that we deem significant. In other words, Because we feel insignificant, we try to remedy that. We try to gain significance by doing one of two things. Either we try to accomplish something great in our lives, and percentage-wise, you know, proportionately very few people are able to do that. You know, like the history history books don't record everything everybody's ever done. Uh, It records people who, that it deems worthy and valuable and have accomplished something great. Proportionately, very few of us will ever accomplish something great in the world's eyes. And therefore, If we can't create something significant ourselves, what we do is we try to latch on to somebody else's significance that we deem important. And therefore, it's like the transmission or the osmosis of significance. Humans are always doing this. Humans have always done this. Look just simply throughout the Bible. 
When the people were making the Tower of Babel, why were they doing that? It wasn't just like a technological advance or a beautiful structure. They did it because they want to make a name for themselves. They felt insignificant, so they're trying to generate some significance. Uh, A little closer to home, just look at Jesus' disciples. You know what the number one argument that Jesus' disciples often we find struggling with? Which of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And in fact, it even impacts their moms. There's this one story I think is absolutely fascinating where a mom of one of, uh, or a couple of the guys has this like private conversation with Jesus where she's arguing for the preferred status of her sons in the kingdom. Do you see what she's doing? She feels insignificant, so she's trying to make herself feel significant by being attached to sons who are attached to Jesus Christ and his significance. Um, look, that's, that's vicarious living. It's vicarious significance. It's all a reaction to our feelings of insignificance, our feelings of uh, failure and sin in our lives, and our quest to become someone. So that's why we do it. But what's the danger in doing it? First of all, the danger in in approaching your value that way as an individual is, number one, it's not going to last very long. Because let's say you attach yourself to somebody that you deem significant. What happens when their star fades? Well, of course, your significance is going to fade like that too, real quick. It's also dangerous because there is Look, there is no study that I'm aware of, and if, if you know of one, by all means, send it my way. There's no study that I'm aware of that says that individuals who have higher opinions of themselves are significantly better for the rest of humanity. In other words, people who have really, really high opinions of themselves, that they are people who work for compassion and love and justice in the world. In fact, What sociologists will tell you is that people who have really inflated opinions of themselves, this is one of the most common traits across the board that you can find in cult leaders, world dictators, and yes, celebrities. It's categorized as something called narcissism. It's extreme self-love. Now we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get to 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 and we talk about this, the idea of the end of self. But what I want you to understand is for many years, our world, the second half of the 20th century, American psychology, essentially what it was doing, it was trying to remedy the problem of insignificance. It was trying to remedy the problem of low self-esteem with what? High self-esteem. Okay, so people feel bad about themselves. They feel lowly about themselves. So let's make them feel incredible about themselves. But the problem is what I just told you. Hebrews and narcissism are traits that lead humans to hurt other humans. And therefore, the solution to our feelings of insignificance cannot be attaching ourselves to somebody that we deem significant and therefore feeling superior to everybody else on the basis of our attractions and our attachments. So what actually is the solution? That's our third point tonight. The solution's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Look again at what the Apostle Paul said in verse 13. He says, look, is Christ divided? Paul says, was, was Paul crucified for you? This is Paul writing this himself. Was, Paul, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the Apostle Paul's making a really good argument here. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, humans cannot serve as functional gods, logically. Why? Well, would they, lay their, would they lay their lives down for you? Would they make sacrifices for you? Remember what Marcy said? Rod loves tall blondes. He doesn't mind taking my money at concerts. But who does he love? 
You know, would, would Rod actually sacrifice for Marcy? Would Rod lay his life down for her? You know, I, I don't know. E- even if you could find a functional God in your life that would, that person would lay down their life for you, how long would that actually help you? How long would that actually bless you? See, the pagan idea of God was that you make sacrifices for them and then maybe they will love you, accept you, and bless you. And the concept of you know, elevating other humans inappropriately. The concept of celebrity works almost the exact same way. You give them your attention, you give them your loyalty, you give them your money, and maybe they will give you significance for a little bit. That's not the concept of a Christian God. See how much more beautiful a Christian God is. The God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, did not come to earth so that you would make big sacrifices for him. He came to this planet to make the ultimate sacrifice for you. One of the Christian teachers that I often refer to, uh, you've heard me refer to him numerous times before, Timothy Keller. By the way, this, this text is not about not uh, liking earthly teachers and not learning from earthly teachers. It's about not elevating anyone to the position of Messiah in your life. And Tim Keller's got a great way of talking about this. He says, Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he will satisfy the deep, deepest longings of your heart. But if you fail him, he'll forgive you. Now just think back to to Marcy and Rod. If Rod is like the functional God of Marcy's life, if she actually could somehow ever get him, would that actually satisfy her long term? No, it would give her an immediate high that would eventually fade off. You know what else functions that way? Drugs. Uh, You can get high on stuff like that from this world, but it will not last longer. In fact, it'll create more significant, deeper problems in the long run, and the insignificance will only return. And for that matter, if, let's say, somehow Rod left, you know, whoever he was with, and Marcy left her husband, and they got together, what if she did something that caused Rod to reject her? It would be like she was being cursed by her God. It would be absolute hell. And it works that way with any pseudo-gods. Jesus Christ is the only God that if you get him, he will actually satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. But if you fail him, he won't leave you. He will forgive you. When you experience grace like that, it eviscerates any pride that is trying to take residence in your heart. See, at the cross, what Jesus did is he said, He emptied himself of himself in order to lift you up for all eternity. That cross and that Savior is the power in your life. Don't you see? Are you a significant person? Of course you are. You know why? Because the God of the entire universe came to this planet specifically to lay down his life for you to pay for your sins, to gift you his righteousness. There is no amount of acclaim or affirmation or significance that this world can give you that will ever possibly amount to that. And therefore, you know, the summary of our lesson essentially is, is Christ divided? No, and therefore we shouldn't be either. We should be humbling ourselves before one another in service to our Lord. Point number two is no true teacher of Jesus Christ will ever try to win you to himself or herself. They will try to win you to Christ. And finally, whenever fruit is born into the Christian faith, in the believer's life, in the church's life, from a teacher's life or anything like that, God gets the glory, not man. Therefore, I want to leave you with this just kind of last story. Uh, I read from a different place recently that um, 
Marilyn Monroe, who was in some respects kind of one of the first American modern celebrities. In other words, a celebrity not, she was famous not in the sense that she had done something great or was in politics or anything like that, but simply because she was in entertainment and the media was driving her fame and that sort of thing. And um, actually she started an autobiography, which she never actually she died before it was published, but certain portions of that uh, unfinished autobiography have been released. And uh, in it, she says something very interesting. She describes how uh, she basically she was born and raised with no father in her life. In fact, she bounced around from foster home to foster home. And at one point in time in the, in the biography, she says, look, I knew, I knew I belonged to the public and to the world, not because I was talented or even beautiful, but because I never belonged to anyone or anything else. See, that's heartbreaking, and it's absolutely right, and it's profound. Christian, you belong. You belong to God, the God of the entire universe. You belong to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ purchased your life with his own blood. There is no material in this universe that is more significant than the blood of Jesus Christ which he paid for you. And therefore, what that means is there is nothing that is more significant than the heart of God and you, yourself. Find yourself only in that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we find our identity in the things of this world, whether it be our careers or our looks or our family or our wealth, our nationality or our moral performance or anything else, when we find ourselves in those things, it's not only psychologically unhealthy, but it creates divisions. Our false identities hurt people. Forgive us. Thank you for saving us by becoming hurt yourself. Help us to identify only with you, your cross, and your blood. May it be your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.